Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Later in the show, Barbenheimer with Mr. Universe and Calvin Mania. Oh my. But first, this show, as well as the NEPM News Department, have been following the fallout for farmers after the floods of a fortnight ago. Last week, Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll were back in Western Mass to announce their partnership with the United Way of Central Mass in the creation of the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund, a place where people concerned about the floods' effects on the farms could donate to offer immediate relief. The governor said at a press conference at Mountain View Farm in East Hampton last week, when it comes to our farms, the reason we set this up is because we need people to pitch in now while we pursue all of those other federal means. If people think that there's going to be a whole bunch of money coming from the federal government this way, I'm not holding my breath. None of us are. But joining us is the president of the United Way of Central Mass, who is brokering the Mass Farm Resiliency Fund, Tim Garvin, and we'll talk to him in just a bit. But meanwhile... Announced just late yesterday and early today, at a flooded farm in Hatfield, State Senate President Karen Spilka of the Middlesex and Norfolk District and State Senator Joe Comerford from the Hampshire-Franklin-Worcester District made a major announcement as to how the state legislature will respond to these floods using state dollars. And joining us are State Senator Joe Comerford. And eventually, State Senate President Karen Spilka. Where live you, radio, everybody. Yeah, live radio, looking into <laughs> our engineers over there, like a mouthing Joe Comerford. State Senator Joe Comerford, this major announcement for farmers, their families, and the families that they feed here in Western Mass is how the press release was billed. Uh, this just happened uh, a little bit over an hour ago. Tell us what this major announcement is. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for your continued interest. Uh, so we're just we just left Hatfield, both the Senate president and I, um, really minutes ago, um, a large crowd gathered with senators and um, folks from the Healy Driscoll administration, farmers, advocates. Um, so what the Senate announced today is that just now a Senate poll, which is a supplemental budget poll, uh, was released with $20 million in public money for farms and farmers. So this is a supplemental budget. I know that um, state representative uh, Natalie Blay was working on a similar uh, bill last week that did not go through. Meanwhile, the actual budget itself is not finished. Why is this supplemental? Is this something that will be built into the the final version of the actual budget whenever that's finished? You know, it's a good question. And um, So the supplemental budgets roll all year long. Um, they're quite usual. It's because the, the large budget, the $58, $59 billion budget, needs to uh, be caught up to speed on numbers of issues and including relief for farmers. And so they roll very frequently. So this is a separate initiative, um, separate from the fiscal year 24 budget. And let me cheer Natalie Blay, Rep Blay's uh, really terrific efforts, along with many in the Western Mass delegation on the House side. Uh, Rep. Lay uh, made a great go uh, for Farm Aid, um, and it was very soon after the first of the f- of the floods, uh, and too soon to be able to go. But um, she'll be, you know, really working super hard on this one once the Senate passes it. So this twenty million more directly addresses the total damages that have been assessed so far. Yeah, so, uh, and I, I, I wonder if the Senate President is with us. She is now with us, Senate she President us. Okay. Karen Spilka. Thank so, you for joining the fabulous 413 and Senator Joe Comerford. Um, thank, uh, thank you Madam for President. having me, Annette. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Madam President, I'm going to turn this over to you, but 
what this does is, uh, under the Senate president's leadership, is it uh, offers, I think, very strategic parameters for the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture Resources and the administration and finance folks at the Healy Driscoll administration to administer this fund on behalf of farmers who have experienced natural disasters. Uh, and it'll give our colleagues at MDAR, who are really quite expert, uh, the parameters they need and also the flexibility they need. Um, so right now with the floods, and this number is expected to grow with all the rain, um, but we've seen about 2,000 acres, 75 farms, and uh, the last estimate is $15 million in damages, although we know that's going to go up in the next days and months. And so the Senate is really, under the direction of the Senate president, thrown down for farmers and allowed MDAR to really do the work that MDAR experts know so well. Well, that's Senator Joe Comerford from the Franklin, Hampshire, Worcester District. Joining us is the Senate President, Karen Spilka. Tell us about this money and how this differs from FEMA money. Jill Kaufman, who I know was at the uh, Hatfield Press Conference from our NEPM News Department, uh, says that FEMA is usually for infrastructure, but that's not going to be the case necessarily for this money because the FEMA money may not be able to help those farmers directly. Is that true? Correct. That is 100% true. Unfortunately, FEMA uh, aid or federal disaster aid is for infrastructure. So many of the communities that saw tremendous damage to their culverts, their bridges, their roads, uh, FEMA money uh, to to be eligible, the total has to come to approximately $12.5 million, which I think we will reach that with all of the communities that saw damage to their infrastructure, again, their roads, bridges, culverts, and and the like, their infrastructure. Uh, So FEMA disaster aid goes to infrastructure, not private farms. So the farms will not be eligible for FEMA, and there's no other pot of money that I'm aware, except for maybe loans uh, under the federal relief programs, and whether or not our smaller farms would be eligible for federal loans uh, is not clear either. Uh, but as noted, and I know Senator Cumberford has raised this as well, so many of the farmers are in debt just from year to year to keep things going. So to add debt just to, to get out from possibly under this uh, catastrophe uh, will not work for most of the farmers. So uh, this is the first time I'm aware that the state has offered this kind of aid, uh, but it's recognition of the role our farmers play in not only the regional uh, food chains and, and uh, uh, providing food uh, to our food banks, our, our farmers markets, our schools, our grocery stores, all across the Commonwealth and uh, serve as economic engines for not only Western Mass, but the entire state. It begs the question, and I did ask this of uh, Representative Jim McGovern last Thursday, why food systems are not part of infrastructure when it comes to FEMA money being allowed to be uh, spent on this sort of thing. But we'll leave that aside and talk to the federal government about that. We're talking with State Senate President Karen Spilka and State Senator Joe Comerford, who moments ago in Hatfield just announced $20 million in a supplemental budget that will be able to assist these farmers. How long until these funds are available? Senator Comerford, do you know, or is this a better question for Senate President Spilka? (laughs) Well, perhaps the Senate President wants to say, uh, but under her direction, the Senate has moved like lightning um, on these funds. 
uh, and we'll debate and vote on this this week. Ooh. Madam President? Right. Yeah, uh, the Senate will take it up, say, Wednesday, Thursday. Today's Monday, so Wednesday, Thursday, we will take up this bill and pass it in the Senate. And uh, we, it will go to the House. We will need to resolve the differences. There aren't that many differences in what we refer to as a supplemental budget uh, between the House and the Senate. So I am hoping that we can get this resolved quickly. The funding can go into a reserve in the administration and fi- the administration and finance uh, secretariat through MDAR, uh, who, as uh, Senator Comerford has has acknowledged, they know the farmers, they know the farms, they have expertise. They've been out here practically every single day to get more information to assess uh, how bad it is and to really work with the farmers and work with the Healy Driscoll administration, getting up, getting the, the private funding. And now uh, we're doing the, the state funding. So it's really been a team effort. So just for clarity for, for me and perhaps others, this is a grant program, not a loan program that has been established for farmers in need. Correct. That, right. is, that is correct. It'll be direct payments to help farmers, as the Senate president actually said so beautifully, they've had a year's, today at, in Hatfield, they've had a year's worth of labor ended with this natural disaster. Uh, and there's no revenue coming in for many of them on the fields that were lost or affected. And again, we expect that to get even more dire in the coming days. Now, um, And so this is helping them not take on more debt, which many have said actually were leveraged up to our eyeballs. We can't take on any more debt. So the choices facing our farmers are whether or not to get out of the business altogether, to lay off their team, to sell some of their land, which when it's gone, and many remember selling land during Irene, that's gone forever. Um, Or the Senate and the legislature can help. We can actually help with some public funds for what is a public good. Our farms are public goods. And, you know, I, I can't have more gratitude for the Senate president. Um, for acknowledging the importance of uh, the farms here in Western Mass and Central Mass um, and really understanding what the legislature could do to help. We're speaking with Senator Joe Comerford and Senate President Karen Spilka. $20 million, I should probably say proposed, because you will have to vote on this on Wednesday and then reconcile it with the House, who already said no. Is there any fear that this will not either come out of committee uh, in a way that will still be close to what you've proposed today, Senate President Spilka? Well, I mean, until it's a done deal, it's actually, uh, in reality, not a done deal. But I'm, I'm very hopeful, considering the circumstances, considering the advocacy, the passions uh, of the Western Mass delegation from both the House and the Senate and uh, the Healy Driscoll administration, uh, also passionate and, and their hard work. To, to with the farmers, with figuring out what is actually happening and the status. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful that this is something that is, is done in short order. What are the sticking points between what the House wants and what the Senate has proposed? Well, you know, our, our bill is not fine. It won't be finalized until it's passed. But there, there are not that many uh, differences at this point. So, uh, you know, again, uh, amend- members have opportunities to file amendments so that there can still be additions when we debate the bill on Wednesday or Thursday. 
That is Senate President Karen Spilka, who, along with Senator Joe Comerford, has announced $20 million in what they say is uh, for farmers, their families, and the families that they feed here in western Massachusetts. Uh, Sometimes it it can be a little more expedient not to go by the means of government and to give directly. And so we have uh, an opportunity that we will hear a little bit more about. I will invite both senators. If you'd like to stick around for the next part of our conversation, please feel free to do so. But up next, Tim Garvin of the United Way of Central Massachusetts, who are behind another way to support farmers, the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Colise Smith. We are joined in the studio by Tim Garvin, who is the president and CEO of the United Way of Central Mass, who is the organization behind the newly introduced public-private partnership to support farmers in the wake of the floodings of a fortnight ago, the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. Tim, thank you so much for coming to Springfield and being part of this conversation. Thrilled to be here. Thrilled to be with all of you. Um, Let me say that again. I am thrilled to be with you. Um, This is live radio, ladies and gentlemen. It's what makes it so much fun. When you said right in front of the microphone, you meant right in front of the microphone. I am thrilled to be out here in Springfield, and I was here last Thursday for the governor and lieutenant governor's announcement and the rollout of this fund. And, And as I said to both of you, for those listeners who might be a little bit beyond 413, Get out here and drive through, see our farms, go into every farm stand and buy the place out. It is absolutely beautiful. The food is great. It is healthy. You will enjoy it and it will help our farms. Tim, how did this idea come about? I know we just spoke with the state senators. We talked about how the House had been proposing these supplemental budgets to try to bring assistance to farmers very quickly. How did it come about that the United Way would be involved with the governor's office in creating this fund? So I think this happens an awful lot where there are people, elected officials, uh, federal officials, state officials, local officials who understand the role that private philanthropy plays. And that can be community foundations. It can be United Ways. It can be other family foundations. The Community Foundation of Western Mass is involved in this as well? Community Foundation of Western Mass is is. I'm going to say deeply and wonderfully involved. They are brilliant. They are on the ground. They know what they're doing. They are attached and connected and involved with local donors and with the farming community. They are deeply involved. Um, I got an email Monday night at 5.55 saying, Tim, if you have a moment, please give me a call. It was from a friend of mine out of the governor's office. And the tagline and why I called that second was, we're hoping you can help Massachusetts. When you get an email like that, if you get a call like that, we're hoping you can help Massachusetts, you say yes immediately. <laughs> you don't even say, what do you need me to do? What do you want me to do? What's the, bro- the bandwidth? You say yes. And that's what we did. And it was really simple. We already heard the Senate president and Senator Comerford say, 75 farms, 2,000 acres, initial estimate, $15 million worth of damage. Not only is that tragic and terrible for our farms, but that's part of our entire Massachusetts economy and every single person in this state, whether it's school children, whether it's our homes for dinner tonight, we eat the produce that's created, that's grown in those farms. This affects every single one of our 351 cities and towns. We said yes. That was Monday night. That was one week ago. What I like to say from... Flood to fund was 10 days. 
That's incredibly fast. And it's kind of a perfect one-two punch with what the state is doing, what we just heard Senate President Spilka and Senator Comerford say. $20 million, that will immediately go to support our farms and our farmers, especially, as I understand it, through uh, Mass Department of Agriculture Resources for crops lost. This private fund, the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund, will be to do all those other things. We hear that farmers have loans. We need to pay those loans because they aren't going to have income coming in. Farmers have mortgages on their farms and on their houses. The farm hands, the farm workers, those wages. How do we help every single person? And what about lost equipment? We don't even know what the value of that or what the valued loss of that will be. We want to help. We're joined by Tim Garvin, the president and CEO of the United Way of Central Mass, who's the administering body behind the Mass Farm Resiliency Fund. And we are still joined by State Senators Karen <laughs> Spilka, the president of the Senate, as well as State Senator Joe Comerford. You, um, but senators, uh, wanted to make a point that this is not uh, what you're doing and what Tim and the, the public are doing aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Hi, um, hi, Tim. Oh, oh, go ahead, Madam President. (laughs) Just quickly, absolutely. Uh, This is uh, the the phrase comes to mind. It takes a village. And I want to applaud and thank Tim and the United Way of Central Mass. I mean, this is where they fit in so wonderfully and perfectly. And I'm so thankful that they mobilized so, so quickly as well. But, you know, both of the, the 20 million from, from hopefully the state and the, the, this resiliency fund will dovetail together because, as you heard, the initial assessment or estimates are 15 million or it could come to more. It could be more longer term that, that there, there needs to be the support uh, to the farmers, the families, the workers, et cetera, just, just as Tim said, uh, to help people to ensure that, that they have the, the resources necessary to get themselves out of this and come out strong. Plus, it covers a lot more ground to have two organizations working towards single cause, especially when, like, the damages may not have covered some of those other things that you mentioned. Well, and totally right. Um, we're looking specifically at the loss from the July 10th flooding. We know there were two other there was the terrible February freeze, and then there was the May freeze. And if I'm not mistaken, and Senate President and Senator Comerford, um, brilliant work today, just absolutely brilliant. But the the state Senate's 20 million supplemental could in fact extend beyond just the the flooding and help more than just the 75 farms. And it's hard to even say more than just the 75. 75, that's massive. Mm-hmm. These are our biggest food producers in the entire state. But there are other farms in this area and others. The The other point that I think is beautiful about this, Senate President, I believe you said this was the first time that in your memory the state has done this. I'm hopeful we don't have to. But we believe, we think that this will not be the first emergency, the first natural disaster that we're going to have to respond to. And it's not just going to be in Western Mass. And I don't even want to presuppose what those other places that are part of our farming community in other regions of the state might also need if and when there's a disaster that strikes them. I love the idea that this is team. I I admit, I think of the U2 song, trying to throw your arms around the world. This is our entire state, our elected officials, our government, our tax dollars. I'm proud to be a taxpayer. Our businesses, our corporations, our mom and pop shops, our farmers, our neighbors, 
our philanthropies, our community foundations, our community institutions, all coming together to say our farms and our farmers, the people who work and run those farms, they are important, and it's our turn to step up. So in light of like climate change especially, it seems like the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund is going to be permanent. Permanent is a scary word. Isn't it? I would think um, replenishable okay. would be a better word. <laughs> and available whenever it might be needed. Exactly. Right. What about the, um, the, the state budget, Senator Comerford? What is your take on should there be something built into a more permanent state budget for farmers in the very likely event that situations like this will continue going forward? Um, thanks for that good question. You know, under the Senate president's leadership, we've seen record investment in programs that are directly applicable to what the farmers have faced. So we have a municipal vulnerability program, which if we had had, you know, the kind of infrastructure that the MVP program promises, say, for example, for Grow Food Northampton, the Mill River may not have taken over its banks and those Somali Bantu farmers would still have their crops and their land intact. So there are really good programs. I mean, I think what this signals and what the Senate is saying with this, you know, generational historic investment is we need help in the short term. And then the Senate, through its work on climate and farms and farm support, because there's been a number of other programs, um, historic investments in what's called the Massachusetts Emergency Food Assistance Program, uh, the Healthy Incentive Program, which goes straight straight to farmers, farm to school, farmers markets, the buy locals. Um, the Senate really throws down for farmers. And and also we did a lot of policy, which we will have to redo again this Senate, this uh, this session. The Senate passed some really, really strong farm policy last session. Um, and so I think what the Senate is saying and has demonstrated on, with the Senate president is we have a long term commitment to farmers and farms. Um, now we need this short term immediate commitment uh, to help weather this disaster and its farms frost. It's uh, the frost, flood and freeze disasters. Uh, and it's going to take all of us. So this is 20 million in public money. And we're cheering for Tim and the resiliency fund because the, the, the total price tag in the short and long term is going to exceed 20 million dollars. We need the public support, and which is why it's so beautiful um, what happens so quickly and public and private, just like it should be for this common good, which is farms. That is State Senator Joe Comerford. We're also joined by the State Senate President Karen Spilka, as well as Tim Garvin, the president and CEO of the United Way of Central Mass. The senators have announced today, just moments ago, $20 million in a supplemental budget that could go directly to support the farmers affected by the floods and potentially more, as well as a fund that was announced last week by the governor's office teaming up with the United Way of Central Mass so that individuals, if they'd like to contribute to support the farmers, can do so. Uh, Tim, before I let you go, quick gauntlet of questions. Is How is this money going to be given out and how do different farmers apply? How are you going to decide to triage who needs what when from this fund? Beautiful question. Um, we have a committee of people from Western Massachusetts on the ground working on that right now. We are hopeful to have uh, the simplest one-page application that can be filled out easy that basically says, what's the value of your loss? What resources do you have to cover that? What's the gap? What do you need right now? Um, we have been talking. Nothing is finalized. Please understand this is all in progress and we are raising money every day towards this. Uh, that initially we would kind of do a tiered approach. The 75 farms would each, we'd divide what we have sometime next week. 
everybody would get the same amount, and then we'd do, as part of that tiered approach, based on those applications, we'd create a triage. Where's the greatest need? I, I was... I use the word thrill too often. I'm I'm so thankful that Senator Comerford mentioned the Somali Bantu farmers who are part of our economy. They might not have the same resources that perhaps a different farm. And so they might not have any resources. They might move higher up in the list so that they can be producing for our food and for our economy. We are going to figure that out with people who are here locally in Western Massachusetts. That includes the United Way of Berkshire, the United Way of Hampshire and Franklin. That includes the Community Foundation of Western Massachusetts. It includes CESA. It includes people who do this work and know this community to help make those those decisions. I just want to add in any of the listeners, if they wish to make donations right now, unitedwaycm.org backslash farm fund. And you you keep on mentioning Central Mass. I see this as a united way and community foundation effort with businesses, with local philanthropists, with individuals across the state for all and any farms and farmers. But right now we're focused on the flooding of July 10th. Tim Garvin from the United Way of all of Massachusetts, but specifically (laughs) Central Mass. That's the website where you'll you'll find his picture. That's the important bit. That's why we say that. And Senator Joe Comerford, (laughs) the Franklin Hampshire District, as well as Senate President Karen Spilka. Thank you so much for uh, telling us how this is all going to work. I feel like I have a better explanation of it. And thanks for all the work you're doing to help support the farmers. Thanks for covering this. It's so important to elevate this story, you guys. For sure. Later in the show, Calvin Mania, Bill Scher, and and archivist Julie Bartlett-Nelson of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Library talk about the festivities at Forbes Library this weekend. But coming up, the mashup we never knew we needed, Mr. Universe filmmaker Bob Kraskowski and Barbenheimer. Great taste together-ish. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Mm -hmm. This is the most crowded I've seen the Greenfield Garden Cinema, except for like a midnight showing of the Star Wars movies. Everybody is here for Barbie. This is my decision to go Barbenheimer, first Barbie and then Oppenheimer. And I'm dressed up as in, a, in my best Ken. What's your name? Uh, Eric Nato. What's your name? I'm Haley. Wait a minute. Aren't you homebody? Yeah, don't tell anybody. But you're also dressed up as Barbies and Ken. Well, you know, pink's a good color. You gotta lean in sometimes. Yeah. I just wear this every day and I just happen to wander in here. This is actually me too. <laughs> People at work didn't even notice I was dressed differently. And then I was like, I'm going to see the Barbie movie. Can't you tell? Jesse Dean, who's the head of the Franklin County Chamber of Commerce, this is quite the scene here at the Garden Cinema. This is amazing. I would expect nothing less. And you are not only the judge of the, the Barbie cosplay contest, you yourself have come in, in sort of Barbie cosplay. I knew what I was doing tonight. So yeah, I came dressed appropriately, but it is a real honor to be a judge. I will tell you that I, as a child, never got to play with Barbies. Why? I don't know. My mom just wasn't into it. So yeah. this is a real dream come true for me tonight. It's like a Barbie dream house. Yeah. Look how it all turned out to my mom. Hey, Barbie. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Yeah. You guys ever think about dying? I have completed the first phase of Barbenheimer, and I'm here with my friend and Turner's Falls' own filmmaker, the man behind the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot, Bob Kraskowski. You've gone the opposite way. You've seen Oppenheimer and Barbie. What are your thoughts? Yeah, they're strangely psychologically linked, one dealing with kind of the male ego and one dealing with the female ego. It's very 
very interesting in that, and they're both excellent movies. It's really cool. <laughs> what a weird weekend. What's one of your big takeaways from Barbie? Uh, hang on, let's, can we do it after? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, we moved to the lobby. Now your thoughts. Yeah, they're both really strangely linked. I mean, they deal with these kind of huge zeitgeisty figures. One's fictional and one's historical, and they're both totally struggling with how they exist in that reality. It's fun because, you know, we program double features at the Shea Theater. Shameless plug, Cinema Storm, <laughs> this coming Saturday. And uh, this makes a really interesting double feature, and there's something to talk about in both of them. Oppenheimer being about nuclear war and the creation of something that you create it, you can't put it back in that box. And what does that psychologically do to you? And then Barbie's about somebody that comes out of a box and literally kind of exists in this strange world that's colorful and run by women. And then they go to the real world and it's not that at all. It plays with that in some really interesting ways. I mean, the audience just had a blast. I mean, people were... This is one of the most crowded audiences I've seen for any movie in a very long time. Yeah, since COVID. Oppenheimer is a psychological thriller kind of at its heart and Barbie is a psychological comedy and so again they're linked in these strange ways and made by film filmmakers who love what they're doing and want people to come to theaters and see movies so go see them both it's a great thing alright well now I can't wait to see Oppenheimer our work here will ensure a peace mankind has never seen until somebody builds a bigger one. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. So we've experienced the Barbie side of things. Now it is the Heimer side of things. And I am with my resident astronomer who also happens to be a board member of Amherst Cinema at his Amherst kitchen table, Hampshire College astronomer, Dr. Salman Hamid. Mr. Universe, you also experienced Barbenheimer this weekend, but you did Oppenbarbie. That is correct. Yeah. Uh, against the current. Oppenheimer is a movie that we were going to talk about anyway because it's a science movie. It is a movie about one of the most famous scientists of all time. Can I have a rant yes. for that. Thank you. Please. Because rant is the way to go these days. Kids love the rant. Exactly. The problem is there are two fascinating films by really interesting filmmakers. And my mistake was uh, I'm not on social media other than on Facebook. So I'm yes, I'm old. You either have to love a movie or you have to be indignantly hated like, you know, which to me it was just bizarre. So on my feed for example, there would be people who would be saying, "Look, why are people going to Barbie? Oppenheimer is the best film ever. This tells you something about what's wrong with the world." Then you would have people, "Oh my goodness, Oppenheimer, why are we talking about this mass killing scientist and things like that. I shouldn't exclude myself out because I would look at those and I'd be like, oh, fools, I am much better than that. I'm thinking, hey, people should think about films and so on and so forth. This is one of those issues that forces you to a team and not enjoy things. I don't feel that way at all. I feel I, like there was a celebration of these two great movies. I never felt pressured to be in any one camp over the other. The only conundrum I had is which to see first. My, you should come to my feed. <laughs> 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 but that aside, at a time when studios are exploiting filmmakers 
and exploiting writers, this is a great time to actually celebrate film. So, and I've never seen movie theaters more crowded. For filmmaking and movie going, this is a big weekend. And I think Barbie is playing every five minutes and it was still full. Yeah. No, it was, it was a lot of fun. And seeing movies in a crowded theater yeah. where you can enjoy people's reactions. I mean, I absolutely love it. I mean, people laughing at Oppenheimer. I was like, wow, that is I was really the only funny. one laughing at Oppenheimer. <laughs> there were some funny moments in Oppenheimer. There's funny moments in every movie. And I'm that one guy that laughs. <laughs> like, oh yeah, the mushroom cloud. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the part. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I did leave the theater after Oppenheimer and was really upset. I mean, like, I was really emotional and I felt like I wished everyone else was. It's the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity by some regards that we've done this. We've created a bomb that killed so many people so quickly and then followed it up with a bomb that could kill everyone so quickly. So if you just talk about the movie as a movie, Oppenheimer does a fantastic job of presenting a nuanced take on a person. It is not a propaganda film. It is not simply an anti-war film or anti-bomb film, but it presents Oppenheimer in a complex light, which I absolutely love that part. There is a lot of care in the way the film is shot. I mean, Christopher Nolan, he does love films. He shoots it on, I think this one is done 65 millimeter, uh, and he shoots it on location. I don't think there are spoilers here because people do know that this happened. And in New Mexico, the first test took place in Los Alamos. He shot it over there. Uh, by the way, if you can uh, hear him, this is a contribution from Wookie. Yeah, Wookie dog. the dog is ranting now about <laughs> Wookie's thoughts on Oppenheimer. There, there are problems with the films as well. I mean, and I think whether he should have shown the explicit footage of uh, the impact of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and so on and so forth. Set all that aside. You and I right now are talking about nuclear weapons and this kind of conversations are taking place and those are taking place because of this film. The movie Oppenheimer is bringing these up that this is crazy. This was crazy that the bomb was built and then the bigger bomb was spelled the hydrogen bomb and the fact that two bombs were dropped. That in itself justifies the film and it says something about great filmmaking. And it brings up this conundrum that you go through the film with Oppenheimer to try to understand, does the United States need to drop the bombs so that no one else will ever drop the bombs? No one else has ever dropped the bombs. There are some things that you earnestly have to wrestle with that go against everything in my moral fiber to say Oppenheimer perhaps had this clarity of thought that if we create these bombs and they are never used, we will never know how bad it will be if we use them. And then the next war, we'll all use them all at the same time. Unless we drop these bombs now to show how bad they are as a deterrent. And then Oppenheimer's whole rest of his life is geared towards talking about the dangers of nuclear war. I don't agree with all of the that mentality, but it certainly brings up some interesting conundrums. And I will also say Oppenheimer and Barbie both have to do with personal existential crises. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. You can go back to your regular life or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel. I, I, I would pivot a little bit in a different direction. Yes, but we are 
in the thick of it. I don't think to say that people haven't used it doesn't mean that they are not going to be used. Right. I mean, it's not that far back that the bomb was built. I think what Oppenheimer hoped, and Oppenheimer is, again, and no hero either, because he actually never really apologized for the dropping of bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The bomb was being built, the whole justification was because Germany was building it, and they thought that Nazi Germany, if they build it, they are going to use it. And Germany had been defeated by the time bomb was ready, and yet it was dropped, but not on Germany, but on Japan. And not just once, twice. And again, it boggles my mind, like, you know, the Hiroshima bomb was dropped uh, to maximize the impact because it was dropped at 8.43, I think, or something like that in the morning. So to maximize people, kids going to school and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that all aside, we did not stop making the bombs today. We, uh, so, and by we, I mean the world has over 13,000 nuclear bombs. A lot of them are much, much bigger than what was dropped on Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. One thing that the Oppenheimer film talks about after he's created these bombs and realizes how dangerous they are, I don't know if it's a spoiler alert because I learned this in high school. I should say a big shout out to my high school history teacher, Mr. Bartek, who really put Oppenheimer on my map. I remember the first thing I think of is I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, which he learned from Sanskrit. I remember the idea that when they tested the bomb, there was the potential they could destroy the whole world with the test and they went ahead with it anyway but Oppenheimer goes forward in the rest of his life and tries knowing that we've unleashed this power and that there is no putting this genie back in the bottle to try to get the international community on board about what to do here and fails so spoiler alert we don't we didn't do a good job <laughs> Oppenheimer by the way learned Sanskrit at college right. like you know he just learned he it learned Dutch so he was a, an autodidact he was a polymath and he I'm reading the book now, American Prometheus. Oh, yeah. I got it out of the library immediately and it's fascinating. Adds even more layers to the movie. There is a clip of Oppenheimer. I think it's from uh, 1965. There is an interview and he has tears in his eyes and he talks about, we knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried, most people were silent. And then he says about that, I remember the line from Hindu scripture. Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I mean, he knew the gravity of it, yet he did it. I mean, I think the deeper question in that is, what is the role of scientists? I mean, in some sense, Oppenheimer also gave him an out to a certain degree when he says, well, we just build it, then it's up to the politicians to do what they do. I'm not clear whether that is the case. I mean, you still have a responsibility. Again, scientists ought to know what is the right thing and what is not the right thing. I mean, we are right now talking about AI. I don't think scientists should be making decisions for all of humanity. Daniel Ellsberg, whose papers now are at UMass, it is just so amazing that Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon papers about Vietnam, that he chose UMass to house his papers. He recently passed away. He also talked a lot about nuclear weapons. And in fact, in the 1960s as well, he was talking about that actually people don't know what U.S.'s stances are. Even now, U.S. actually opposes no first use policy. Meaning to say U.S. reserves the right to use a nuclear weapon before it has been used on the U.S. So this is again not a deterrent. So Daniel Ellsberg actually, he said he grappled with that question. Dad, there are those who would say that it makes it less likely to have the overall cataclysm if you have the ability to blow things up. That will make it less likely that it will ever go off at all. And he says that his father responded to it and he says, yes, 
but there is a moral cost to having this capability at all. It is not just a matter of a risk and a cost of blowing the world up. There is a moral cost in telling yourself and teaching your children that there are circumstances that would justify killing everything and therefore that would justify having this capability. And I think there is clarity in that. I mean, it's just so great to be in an area where actually there is a very local connection to these topics. Not to mention the fact that two-time Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Ira Helfand, who's been on our show, lives in Northampton and has been talking about the disarmament of the planet and the nuclear uh, treaty that some nations have signed on, none that have nuclear weapons. International campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. I can. It comes from our valley here. I hope people will leave Oppenheimer the way that I did, feeling so desperately sad and scared for the world because we are closer to nuclear annihilation now than even at that time. And I hope people leave Barbie and uh, want to stick it to the uh, patriarchy. Up next, Calvin Mania with Bill Share and Julia Bart- Julie Barton-Nelson from the Forbes Library. It has nothing to do with Calvin and Hobbes. No. Unfortunately. You're Calvin. listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're joined by Julie Bartlett-Nelson, archivist at the Forbes Library in Northampton. And by Bill Scher, who is the politics editor for The Washington Monthly, also the first gentleman of the city of Northampton and the vice president of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Library and Museum Standing Committee. It's, it's You can only stand at the Calvin Coolidge <laughs> Museum. Okay. We do have a paucity of chairs, so that's actually yes. accurate. <laughs> <laughs> we should work on that. This yeah. Saturday at the Forbes Library is Calvin Mania, a celebration of the 30th president of the U.S., who is also the former mayor of Northampton, Calvin Coolidge. Welcome, both of you. I think some people know for sure, but other people don't know that there is a presidential library nestled in the Forbes Library in Northampton. Tell us how Calvin Coolidge's library, in light of all these spectacle libraries we've seen from other presidents, lives inside the Forbes. Julie? Yes. So... Calvin Coolidge um, went to Amherst College and moved to Northampton in 1895 to clerk for a law firm, study law, and become a lawyer. And he spent a great deal of time in the brand new Forbes Library, which opened in 1894 with the benefactor Charles Forbes, who was a lawyer and a judge, and left his law book collection there. So Coolidge, as a student, um, spent a great deal of time in his public library studying from those law books. And then it was a librarian from 1912 to 1950, Joseph Harrison, who started collecting local history, ferocious collector of local history, and also a photographer himself. And he started documenting the community in Northampton and included Mayor Coolidge, Senator Coolidge, Lieutenant Governor and Governor Coolidge, and then Vice President and President, and worked with directly with Calvin Coolidge, his wife Grace, and their son John to keep collecting materials to what is now the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Library Museum there. Where do you go to see the library? Is it open at all times while the library is open? Is there a special wing in there? It's up on the second floor of the library. So we do occupy the left-hand side of the second floor, about 2,000 square feet. It's open Monday through Friday from 10 to 5 and Saturday from 2 to 5. Behind all the art. Yeah, there you go. There's also <laughs> great art up there. Um, Calvin Coolidge, an interesting historical figure, Bill Share. I believe I learned from your wife, the mayor of Northampton, 
that the only race he ever lost in his time was for city councilor in Northampton. Do school, I remember that? School, school, school committee. committee, right? I knew it was a... And, <laughs> and he was criticized because he did not have any children. Ah. And his response was, uh, you may know the verbatim quote, but you should have given me a little bit more time. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about Calvin Coolidge's politics and his impact as both mayor of Northampton and then as a president of the United States. Well, I think that's what's so fascinating about Coolidge. It, it, People are very quick to put him in a box through modern eyes. If you're a conservative, he's the greatest conservative. If you're a liberal, he's the worst conservative. But he's a much more complex figure in a period of American history that is kind of transitional, uh, but sandwiched between the progressive era of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and then the New Deal and fair deal of, of FDR and Truman. Uh, and there's a lot going on in terms of race and politics around this time where the Demo- where, where African Americans had so long been wedded to the Republican Party. They're peeling away from that, but not all the way quite yet. Uh, it's before the New Deal and uh, Truman's desegregation of the military brings them into the Democratic Party. Uh, so there's a lot to learn about Coolidge's role in these transitions that doesn't fit cleanly into any kind of ideological box. I think the first president to consistently bring up anti-lynching or at least propose it was never actually approved until let's not talk about it, but it's this administration. (laughs) (laughs) Is that correct, Julie Bartlett Nelson, archivist at the Forbes? Yes. So in his annual message to Congress, which, you know, State of the Union, we call it today, he called for an anti-lynching bill every year. And um, Congress never acted and passed anything during his time. Well, that's what's tricky about Coolidge. And I don't, we try not to oversell or undersell. We try to do, and we don't try to tell you what to think and yet at the museum. A whole festival about <laughs> right. It's a mania, though. It's a commemoration. <laughs> You're commemorating. It's this hundredth anniversary of his swearing in next week, and we can get to, get to that. Um, but it's not our job to tell you what to think. Right. It's our job to give you the facts, and you can draw your own conclusions. Uh, he was an advocate of the anti-lynching law, but he also didn't lean in super hard Yeah, uh, because there were a lot of people in Congress that didn't want it, and he wanted to pass other bills. He wanted to keep African Americans in the Republican fold. So there's, there's certain things that he tried to do to that end. You know, for example, in 1924, uh, there was an African American running for Congress in uh, New York City and he got a letter from a racist saying you shouldn't, he shouldn't be allowed to run. He wrote back saying he absolutely should be allowed to run. And that letter went, went public. So there are things like that they did, symbolic, uh, but designed to say, hey, African-Americans, you should stay with the Republican Party of, of, of Lincoln's day. Uh, but he was also hamstrung by the racism of the time and couldn't lean as hard into something like the anti-lynching law that maybe we would have, would have preferred to see. That is Bill Scher, who is the vice president of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Library and Museum Standing Committee. We're also joined by Julie Bartlett Nelson, the archivist at the Forbes Library in Northampton. Calvin Mania, commemoration of President Calvin Coolidge, who is also the mayor of Northampton, this Saturday at the Forbes. Silent Cal is what we hear about Calvin Coolidge. He was silent. There was a bar in Northampton called Silent Cal's. There's the Calvin Theater which I'm assuming is named after Calvin Coolidge. Yep. There's the Coolidge Bridge, which I'm assuming is named after Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> a lot of, of Coolidge-related things in our area. Where did the name Silent Cal come from? 
Yeah, that's Julie. a nickname from the press um, during his time in Washington. And he's a quiet, shy, introverted guy. So he's not your typical politician um, working with the media explosion of the 20s and what that meant. Um, that, you know, he's efficient with his time and words. And so he gets this nickname, a silent cow. But looking at his time, he spends more, he gives more press conferences per number of days in office than any other president. So we Ever? Have, Even ev- to this day? So we have, after the Eisenhower era, they kind of switched to a press secretary uh-huh, mode, right. um, but an actual press conference. His aren't the longest, but they're the most frequent use of the media. And that gets overlooked quite a bit. We do have the press conferences in transcript form. They are up online to read and research from. And it wasn't a give and take with the press. Sometimes um, the press would write questions on cards and hand them to his staff and he'd choose what to answer. Sometimes he gave a prepared statement, um, but it rarely would he allow any rebuttal, like a give and take. It reminds me of Bill Belichick's press conferences after every Patriots game. (laughs) Bill Scher from the President Coolidge Standing Committee at the Forbes Library, Calvin Mania, this Saturday. Tell us what's going to happen at Calvin Mania. So it's unusual that you would commemorate the 100th anniversary of a swearing-in in July or August, because uh, they usually happen in January. But Warren Harding died by a heart attack right. while traveling uh, to, from Alaska uh, <laughs> in the middle of the Teapot Dome scandal. So, so the stress of the job. I mean, he he was highly stressed. The scandal was blowing up. This is one of the most corrupt administrations of all time, and he was feeling the heat. Uh, and he died on this trip. Uh, Calvin is with his father in a very remote area of Vermont. Well, they don't even have a telephone in the house. And he's woken up in the middle of the night saying that Harding has died. And he is sworn in by his father at 2.47 a.m. Who His father was a notary public, which is why he could do the swearing in. Ah, wow. Uh, and it was done by a light of a kerosene lamp. Now, that's August 3rd. So that's the 100th anniversary is uh, Thursday, August 3rd. But this Saturday, July 29th, at the grounds of the Forbes Library and the Coolidge Museum. We'll be commemorating the swearing-in with 1920s music, with Coolidge's favorite pie. Guess what his favorite pie is? Meat pie. Pork apple pie. <laughs> it sounds delicious, actually. It is delicious. Pork you know, chops and applesauce. It's going to be made by uh, Florence Pie Bar, so you know it's going to be good. Uh, <laughs> and Grace's favorite pie, butterscotch pie, will be there also. Grace Coolidge, the first lady. We, we both speak- have good taste. Speakeasy mocktails, music from the O-Tones, 1920s music, uh, and a new fi- biographical film will be debuting as well. Which is um, a biographical film by another person that has a very similar last name to yours, uh, Stan Shearer. Yes. Yeah, just to make it all confusing. The <laughs> husband of the mayor of Northampton, Gina Louise Shera, is Bill Share, who joins us. Share and Share alike. Thank you so much. Calvin Mania this Saturday at the Forbes Library in Northampton. Tomorrow on the show, we're live from North Adams, completing our collection of counties for live shows. We had Damas Mocha to talk with the folks behind the Bang on a Can Loud Music Weekend, which is the culmination of their summer festival. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Kalia Smith. You're listening to the O-Tones. We're going to play Calvin Mania on Saturday. So go see them. This is the fabulous 413. We'll see you tomorrow. My baby just cares for me.